John Hovey graduated from Cornell University in the year 2000 with a degree in mechanical engineering and went on to become a captain in the US Marine Corps. In 2005, he earned his Wilderness Emergency Medical Technician Certificate and began working with the National Outdoor Leadership School as a first aid trainer and expedition leader. You can see more about Knowles at www.nols.edu. John has led Knowles courses in the US, Mexico, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, New Zealand, India, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, Germany and China. John's a keen paraglider pilot and mountaineer, having summited Rainier, Hood and Shasta in the US, as well as Kilimanjaro in Tanzania and Stockangri in India. He is based in Barcelona and can be regularly found flying in nearby Asia and Organia. If this podcast raises any issues or questions, you can contact him at john underscore hovey at knolls.edu. In 20 years of flying hang gliders and then paragliders, I've had the misfortune to witness many accidents. In my early years, I had no first aid training and just had some folksy wisdom on what to do if somebody was injured. All that changed when I had an accident myself and no one knew what to do. I'm a big advocate of doing first aid training purely for selfish reasons. If you're the one lying on the ground injured and nobody knows what to do, at least you'll have some knowledge that'll help your situation. In some of the accidents I've attended, there were people who didn't want to get involved either due to lack of knowledge or confidence, fear of doing the wrong thing or being sued. John and I have addressed some of these issues in this podcast and we hope that listening to the next 40 minutes equips you with some ideas of what you can do when there is an accident. One thing is certain, you can and should do something. What would your first bit of advice be in terms of what to do? One thing before we even talk about what to do is to make sure that people understand they should do something. I do run into a lot of misconceptions. And of course, there's there's the one situation that often happens, which is everybody runs over to help. The poor person gets dragged all over the place. But another common situation that you, you read about or you hear about is people that don't don't feel comfortable helping, where they feel that they'll put themselves in some sort of risk, uh, liability-wise, if they go and help. And so I do like to put a plug and say that you know, most of the countries in Europe, uh, North America, and, and many countries around the world do have the Good Samaritan laws in place. And it's very, very difficult to find a case where someone was successfully sued for trying to help someone. Uh, nearly impossible. I'm not saying that it's, it could never happen. But most of the time, people are very, very appreciative when there's a rescue made. And cases where people have been sued for trying to do the right thing are, are nearly impossible to find. So I think people should uh, should act, and they should feel empowered to act. It's the right thing to do morally and ethically. We're all pilots, and legally there's there's not the risk that I think these these horror stories like to give people the idea that there is. People should help each other. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. If your mate's lying there injured, you want to go to them because you would hope that if it was you, that they would come and do it for you. And, and that's what being in the community is all about, that when the shit hits the fan, we support each other, we don't walk away. So what to do? Okay, there's been an accident, and to try to structure the 
the thought exercise, since we're, we're not witnessing one ourselves, but we're just imagining one, let's say that it's been a, a fairly serious one, right? Someone has, has crashed a paraglider. So I think we need to act and we need to initiate a rescue call very quickly. And then we also need to go and help the person who's been hurt as well. And people will, will debate on and on about what's the right thing to do. Should I go and help the person first and then make the call? Should I make the call right away and then go help the person? And I'm not sure that there's a, a 100% right answer. Most of the time, there's going to be the availability to maybe delegate one of those tasks. And so they can happen simultaneously. So make the call for 999 or 112 as soon as you can, and then go help the person. Can I just say here that I have been to two rescues, and I said to somebody, right, go phone an ambulance. And they said, what's the number? <laughs> Amazing. And if you want to go and do something, anything, make sure that you know the number to dial if something goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And we are lucky now that all throughout Europe, 112 is going to work in, uh, mm -hmm. in every country in the EU. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, if you're going to travel, then that's something that you should look up so that, uh, yeah, you, you have that information. All right, so we're going to go in and help this person. Someone's going to call 112. The operators speak English throughout the EU, and uh, and that's not going to be a problem. Can I just ask you at this point about a person in charge? When you've got a rescue, if everybody's diving in and everybody's shouting instructions and things, it can become extremely chaotic. Absolutely. And it's always helpful if it's one person who takes charge and everybody else helps. And a lot of the time, people don't have that confidence to take charge unless they've had some training. Yeah, it's critical. And how to make that happen is, I mean, there's all, all number of books written every year about leadership and uh, these type of things. It's a very complicated thing. I think there are some obvious ways to default. One thing that you said is, is true, um, that if, if you have training, then it's, it's reasonable that the most trained person should be the one that's calling the shots in a rescue. There is a sort of personal empowerment that comes from having training and then there's also just a, a reasonability you know uh, the person who knows the most what to do might be the one that you want to put in charge of the thing if you're thinking to yourself i would be very very reluctant to take charge i think a little bit of honest self-assessment is a good idea is that a knowledge gap that you perceive in yourself and you say oh i wouldn't want to take charge because i really wouldn't know what to do in which case, taking a first aid class or, or seeking some other kind of training, maybe organizing a training for your club was a great idea. You know, I've been in a situation where like four of us have run down to the casualty and we've just all looked at each other and said, who knows most? And somebody will say, well, I've done this. And you say, right, OK, you take charge. It can be a very quick whip round, look at each other, go, OK, who's going to do this? And somebody will either come forward or somebody needs to be nominated. Yeah. And, and that's how it's worked in, in the rescues that I've attended. I think that's it, fantastic. Well, at least if one person knows that there needs to be a leader, then you can start that negotiation. Where if everybody's just standing around going, well, I don't know anything, I don't either. Oh, oh damn, he's lying there bleeding. Mm, well, all we can do is, is call an ambulance because we know nothing. You still need somebody to, to take charge of that call. So you still need to nominate a leader. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're, you're going to help the patient, before you rush in, 
you need to always uh, take that moment and consider the safety of the situation for yourself. They say in a rescue, there's four priorities for safety, and that's first yourself, second your crew, anyone who's going to do the rescue with you. Uh, the third priority is the public and the community, anybody else who might be at risk based on what's going on. And then number four is the, the casualty or the patient. And I think people lose sight of that, but it's not going to make the situation any better if you injure yourself or others, because now there's going to be more people that need assistance and fewer people that can assist. So, you know, in a paragliding crash situation on the ground, that might not be such an issue, but if someone was to go in a tree or something like this, you could very quickly have a situation where someone got the bright idea to start climbing the tree or doing something else that would put them at risk uh, or power lines or something like this. So take note of the, of the hazards. And if it is a hazardous situation, then remember your obligation to your, your personal safety and don't make the situation worse by getting yourself injured. Any paragliding injury is going to probably be considered a potential spine injuring event that will influence how we're going to help the casualty or help the patient. So we'll keep that in mind. And then another thing that we should be thinking about as we're, as we're walking over to help the person is uh, about first aid supplies. Do we have a first aid kit available? Can we send someone for that? And specifically if there's going to be a lot of blood involved in the modern world, body substance isolation, you know, keeping the blood from the situation, from getting on your, your skin is, uh, is reasonable and you should do that. And so the ideal situation would be that medical gloves are available, but if not, as pilots, we all have gloves. So just take, take some precautions and don't get blood all over your body. When you reach the casualty, things that you want to focus on are the life-threatening conditions or the life-saving steps that you can do right away. So, uh, I like to right away get some sort of information about my patient's mental status. Are they conscious? And that's pretty easy. Uh, I can just talk to them and hopefully get some, get some confirmation that they're either conscious or unconscious. And uh, I want to encourage the casualty to remain still. Tell the patient, hey, I want you to stay where you are. We'll come to you. And that, again, goes back to the idea that this person may have injured their spine. We're all aware that spinal injuries something that we see from time to time in paraglider crashes. And so the bad idea would be for this person to try to get up and walk, which happens after crashes all the time. Uh, we want to encourage this person, no, remain still, uh, don't, don't get up, let us come to you and, and assess you. So get some information about the consciousness of the patient, encourage them to stay still, and, uh, and we should also make sure that we have consent to help the person. And we get consent by just asking, hey, we'd like to come help you. Is that okay? Most of the time, the patient is going to say yes. And if the patient says no, keep away, you know, that's fine. That's, the, that's every person's right to consent or not consent to care. Uh, I think we can do a lot to encourage people to consent to care by keeping the situation very calm, keeping the number of rescuers to, uh, to a low amount so that the person doesn't become alarmed that there's going to be some chaos and assuring the person that we're not going to do anything that they, that they don't consent to. I think those are very important things to do initially right away. 
what other things okay. can we do for this person? Yeah, so, mm-hmm. so if they're lying there bleeding, uh, <laughs> what, what do we do about that? Uh, some other things to think about. So we talked about having the person lie still. I think that's very important. And then uh, more or less around the world, every first aid system has some sort of alphabetical mnemonic to help people remember airway breathing and circulation. You know, broken bones we can deal with in a slow manner. And there's some injuries, of course, that we're not going to be able as a, uh, a first aid person, you know, not a surgeon to help. But airway breathing and circulation needs to jump into your mind as well, because those are things that you might be able to have an impact on, keep your patients alive while you're waiting for the rescue. So as far as airway, if your person is awake and they're talking to you, that's great. You still want to encourage them to open their mouth. You want to take a look in there. And if there's anything inside, they need to spit that out for you, hopefully, while they're while they're still conscious. And if they're not conscious, then you need to open the mouth and and get anything in there, the or anything that could be in there, out of there. What could be in there? Maybe the person was chewing gum. Uh, could be that they've bitten their their cheek or their tongue, so they're bleeding. Uh, they could have broken a tooth or two. And anything that's in the mouth could obviously enter the airway and, and go down into their, into their throat. And we don't want that. So we need to get that material out. And if there is a lot of liquid, then you could consider putting the, the patient in sort of a side position so that that, uh, that blood or saliva or other liquid will, will drain out of the mouth instead of draining back into the person. So airway, breathing. Let's make sure that the person is breathing. And if they're not breathing, then that would be the time to initiate your cardiopulmonary resuscitation, your CPR. And that's not something I think we can really talk through on a podcast. Uh, people need to get that training. But CPR yeah. classes are they're widespread, they're very available. And uh yeah, it's half of your half of your day. So go go learn that. Uh but yeah, you want your person to be breathing, obviously. And then for circulation, assuming that they're not getting CPR from you. Then your next priority with circulation is to address any serious bleeding that's going on. And I think that's another thing that I see in situations is there's a reluctance to expose injuries and to take a look. And people are very, oh, well, you know, the leg is crooked. Great. We don't want to touch that. Yes, you do. You'd like to get the clothing out of the way so that you can take a look and see if there's any serious bleeding because uh, applying pressure to a bleeding something that's very quick and easy to do and and could make a, a big difference whether your patient goes into shock or not, whether they, whether they live or not. So expose any injuries, uh, anywhere that the patient's hurting. If we're, you know, if your patient is wearing a flight suit or something like this, then you have to be thinking that they could be bleeding underneath of that clothing and it would be very difficult to see until they've lost a lot of blood. The ambulance team will rip the clothes off anyway. As a friend, you can you can probably salvage a lot of your, your friend's uh, paragliding gear before the ambulance service gets there and chops it up with their shears. They're not going to care that it's a paragliding harness that costs a thousand pounds. They're just going to shred it with their knives. It's a secondary consideration to your person's, your person's health, but saving their gear might be a nice thing that you could do for them at that stage as well. That's another thing. So when we're talking about spinal injuries and and removing the gear, I encounter during the trainings that I run a pretty persistently held belief in the public that 
any movement of a person with a spine injury is uh, is an extremely dangerous thing. And there's only so much truth to that. Rough handling of a casualty is is a terrible idea. You wouldn't want to do that. But there could be very reasonable situations after a paragliding injury where you might have enough people available to move a person uh, from a, a dangerous or uncomfortable situation, and that might be the reasonable thing to do. Um, so, of course, that's going to depend on the situation. Your idea, of course, should be to have 112 or 999 on the way. You know, if you're expecting them to be arriving fairly quickly, I think keeping the person in place is, is likely to be the most reasonable thing to do. But if you're in a remote country or for whatever reason the ambulance is going to be delayed and you have a, a reasonable idea to move the person, then there are some safe ways to do that. And that's something that you can practice during a, a training as well. The main idea is that if your patient is going to be waiting for, for some time, a potential spine-injured person is going to be safest when they're spine is supported by the ground, they're lying flat on their back, their head is in a neutral position, and it's being held still by another person. Uh, that's the ideal standard. So it very well could be that someone who's crashed into rocky terrain or if there's a hazard and the person needs to be moved, that that has to happen in order to achieve the best outcome for the person. You don't want to do that with, with one or two people. You'd like to do that with three people on either side of the person and then a, a seventh person holding the head still. But yeah, getting the, the buckles undone, getting the harness out of the way if that's, if that's blocking access to, to injuries or if that's something prudent that you can do while the rescuers are on the way. Great idea. And doing a very gentle, very controlled lift to move your patient out of a hazardous situation and onto flatter ground where you could then set them down and wait for the ambulance to come uh, might be a good idea in some situations. And the commonly held superstition that any movement of a patient is, is lethal or is, is going to result in debilitating injury, there's not any data to really support that. There's very few cases at all that you can point to where the handling of rescuers had any bearing on the severity of the injuries from a crash. So I think that's a nice thing that people should know and, and hopefully practice once or twice because it could be important if your patient crashes and they're face down in the water or something like this, then they do need to be moved out of that water. Having at least some idea of how to do that is a good idea. I've had sort of both situations where I was actually moved into a really bad situation. My, I broke my arm and my rescuers decided that because I'd been in an accident I needed to be put in the recovery position on my side. Mm. But that actually made me lean on my broken arm. Ah. But then I also had the situation where I broke my back. I was actually head down on a slope mm -hmm. with my legs above me. And I didn't want anybody to move me, but eventually I, I, I realised that it, it, I was not in a good situation. You know, My head needed to, to be moved. So I 
moved my legs myself with the support of them. Sort of, they were bracing me from underneath, and we did it together, if you see what I mean. I didn't want them to lift me, but, but then when the ambulance crew came, they just throw you on a stretcher anyway. You know? <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, you've been there as the rescuer, and you've like, no, not touched them, and not done this, and not done that. And then the ambulance crew comes, and just like, yeah, right, right, rip all our clothes off, get her turned over, on the stretcher, boom, boom, in the ambulance, and away. And you think, oh, oh, we, you know, well, we could have done whatever, you know. You, as the rescuer, you feel far less comfortable yeah. Yeah. wading in than the actual ambulance guys are. No, no, no. Uh, they don't mess around, and uh, yeah, you can't stay there forever. That's what I always tell people. Well, we don't want to move the patient. Yeah, but they, they're going to be moved. You know, <laughs> I think it's uh, funny. But I think your first anecdote, well, both of them actually. It goes back to that issue of consent, too. And I think that's exactly what I'm talking about when I say we want to help the person, but we're only going to do what the, the patient consents to do. And so in that case, it sounds like you were telling your rescuers, hey, I, I don't want you to move me. In essence, I, I don't consent to, to that portion of the help that you're trying to offer. And they said, great, we won't do that. Uh, we'll work together to do what you want to do. I think that is a great situation. That's how it should work. If you aren't in Europe where rescue is quite easily available, you're going to have to move that person. I'm just thinking of Joe Simpson in Touching the Void mm -hmm. and his broken leg. And they had to strap him to a horse and ride him out. And it was probably the most painful thing ever. But they couldn't leave him there. You know, at some point, you have to make a decision about if no, there's no rescue coming, then we're going to have to do something. And that doing something is going to involve moving the casualty somehow. We're very fortunate in Europe that we've got these services, but there's some places where you just have to take charge and move them and get them closer to a hospital. Absolutely. And I think the farther afield that you go, the more risk that you're potentially taking if there is an accident. Okay. We've done an assessment of the casualty then, back to our accident. The, the next thing you need to be thinking about is making it easy for the professional rescuers. And um, if a helicopter is part of the plan, if you've been able to, to contact emergency services and they tell you that a helicopter is on the way, then making it as easy for those folks to do their job as possible is a good idea. Things that the helicopter wants. Probably the number one thing that will make it easy for the, the air ambulance is your exact location. And these days, we all fly with a GPS and we all have smartphones. So having coordinates for your, your patient, your casualty, there's no reason not to have those coordinates. Uh, make sure that you have those coordinates. Don't rely on you know, describing the hill that you fly because it's very familiar to you, but the air ambulance is flying from God knows how many miles away. They've never been there. So, so make sure that you can deliver those coordinates. Uh, come up with a way to do that. And then, and then prepare the site to receive a helicopter as well. Uh, what I've seen usually is that uh, if you can give the helicopter coordinates, the helicopter is going to arrive, and then it's going to fly right past and land wherever they want to land. But they're going to try to land as close to you as possible. The helicopter is going to want a flat space. That can be a surprisingly small flat space. 
but the ideal is something like a, a football field, obviously. If there was a big flat field with no obstacles and wind direction uh, indicated, that would be the ideal for the helicopter. Things that are going to make the helicopter not want to land as close as possible is going to be a lot of people standing in the landing area, other paragliders in the air, or a lot of paragliders laying on the ground because the helicopter pilot is, is always thinking about the safety of that aircraft and the crew. And so anything that could blow up into the rotors, fabric or anything else, any rubbish is going to be a danger for the pilot and for the air crew. And so that they're not going to land near you if there's a bunch of debris in the landing field. So clear the landing area, get all the people to congregate in one place, make sure you've got a system in place to have any pilots that are still flying their gliders around, get them out of the air, and then make sure that, yeah, debris, other gliders are not laid out. That would be a terrible situation if you crash the helicopter. And, uh, and if you can, indicate wind direction. Usually at the flying site, there's already some wind indicators. But if not, then you could make one pretty quickly. So those things are going to encourage the helicopter to land as close to you as possible and help speed the recovery of your patient. In terms of when you're actually waiting for the rescuers to arrive, is it good to keep the casualty talking and, and trying to make sure that they don't drift into unconsciousness? I, th I would say in general... Sure. You know, medically speaking, I'm not sure that whether the person drifts off or not is going to mean the difference uh, in, in any likely scenario between their recovery and, or, or not. But yeah, in general, it can be a, a very a lonely experience for someone who's rescued. Uh, it can be a very scary experience. And I think that the, the general approach that rescuers like to encourage is to have one person whose job is to sit and talk to the patient, answer their questions, keep them informed of what's going on, and then everybody else sort of go about their business. Uh, when there's a whole bunch of people trying to do that job, that can be almost worse because, again, the, the person is is not in, in the best frame of mind to receive a whole bunch of uh, information from different people. But yeah, uh, having one person to, to stay with the patient and check in with them, keep them calm, is a fantastic idea. I think it's also actually quite good for the rescuers. You know, while you're waiting, you've done everything that you can do, and then you start feeling helpless. So actually, if you can be talking to them, it gives you something to do to pass the time as the rescuer. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Another common thing that is a bit counterintuitive but is very common is that the person who has been injured rather than concentrate on the fact that they're injured and that they're in, in dire straits often what consumes them the most during those moments while they're waiting for the rescue and then during the rescue and, and even on and on for for the recovery is a sense of guilt uh, they feel very guilty and ashamed that all these people have to now stop doing what they're doing to to attend to them. And so I think that's something, at least it surprised me when I learned about that. And it's something that as a rescuer, you can do a lot to help as well. Just by reassuring the patient, hey, we're doing this, we're happy to help you. The professionals arrive, you know, these are people who have dedicated their life to do this because they love it. 
just helping that person to work through a little bit of the the complex emotions that they're going through as well. They're probably in their minds trying to understand what just happened with the accident as well. And so who knows what they're thinking and trying to just keep them calm and keep them thinking about, you know, what are the important things now, uh, your, your health and safety and getting you the medical care that you need rather than focusing on the difficult emotions of, of how was this accident caused? Did I make a mistake? I feel so guilty that all these people are being put out to help me. I think you can do a lot of, of what they call psychological first aid by just talking to this person and, and helping them to stay in a, a more sort of effective state of mind is, is probably a really nice thing that you can do. I mean, I've been at a rescue where we've waited so long that we ended up telling each other Christmas cracker jokes because we just run out of things to say. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody, everybody's like, keep talking to him. And I'm like, I don't know, I've, I've run out of things to say. And for me, that's quite amazing because, you know, I, I like, I do like to talk a bit. We just needed to focus his mind on something else other than the pain that he was in and, and this endless waiting for the rescue. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a, a very interesting thing because in our collective imagination, we really do, we hear the word helicopter and we think, oh, it's going to be here in minutes. But the reality of many rescues is that delayed care, extended time at the crash site or the, the scene of the event. Yeah, when when the, the rescue is delayed, whether it's due to weather or due to the country that you're in, then longer care patient ideas do come into play. Uh, your patient is going to potentially start getting cold. So be thinking about you know, if we have to stay here for hours and, you know, we're starting to tell Christmas cracker jokes, then uh, we need to be thinking about not only staying warm, but maybe looking for ways to provide a shelter if the weather starts to change. And then keeping your patient fed and hydrated and helping them use the bathroom. Those are sort of basic nursing type tasks that might become part of your rescue as well. Probably not necessarily at the the club flying site but certainly if you're if you're traveling abroad you could be you could be with a patient for a long time the general first aid idea is uh is you know you're not allowed to give anybody anything to eat or drink and that stems from the idea that the person might be going into surgery and so the anesthesiologist would like to be working with an empty stomach uh, it's a little bit easier for the anesthesiologist to anesthetize the patient and get them ready for surgery if they don't have to worry about a full stomach emptying its contents into the airway. However, people people suffer accidents having just eaten all the time. It doesn't mean that the person can't do their job. So I think that's another one of those sort of common wisdom ideas. I'll give nothing by mouth. No, this person can't have anything to eat or drink. That, that works fine for an imminent rescue. But if you're on the hillside, for hours waiting for the ambulance to arrive, it's completely reasonable to keep your patient hydrated and to help your patient have some food if, if they're asking for it, if they're hungry. Going back to what you were saying about keeping the casualty warm and preventing shock, mm -hmm. is there any other things that we can do to prevent shock? Yeah, I think I think shock is, is funny because it's it's got sort of a commonly held meaning and then it has a medical meaning. And 
there is some overlap, but there's also some some distinction. So when we say shock commonly, like you'll hear this sort of anecdote all the time. Yeah, it was crazy. I I saw this person break their arm, they fell off a skateboard or whatever, and he, he didn't feel any pain at all because he totally went right into shock. Uh, people will, will tell this sort of anecdote, and they're describing more of a psychological reaction to an injury. And when medical people use the word shock, what they're commonly referring to is a circulation system deficit. So the circulatory system is not moving the blood around the body, especially to the brain, in an effective manner. And that's causing big, big problems for your patient's health. But as far as recognizing true medical shock, when the, the person's circulatory system is not pushing uh, blood around the body, um, then you have to start thinking about, okay, what's causing the shock? And in a, a paraglider crash, there's a few obvious answers and then a few, a few ideas for treatment. The most obvious answer would be that the person is bleeding, and that could be external bleeding or internal bleeding. If your patient has suffered a, a lot of wounds, you know, maybe they were injured by the trees and they've, they've damaged an artery. That could be a source of bleeding. If they have a, an open fracture where a bone has punctured the skin, that could bleed quite heavily. And we would address that bleeding with direct pressure on the wound. So, you know, your first idea for treating shock is always to address the cause, try to stop it at its root. So external bleeding, we use direct pressure. Internal bleeding, as a rescuer on the side of the hill, we're not going to be able to address. If someone's sustained damage to their organs or they have uh, a fracture, like a femur fracture that's bleeding internally, we're not going to be able to address that. And so rapid rescue is their best hope for that. Another answer to why this person could be going into shock would be uh, a spine injury. When you damage your spinal cord, one potential complication of that is that the the muscles that control the dilation of the veins and arteries in your legs will become flaccid. They might not have the normal signals to retain tone because the spinal cord is under pressure or is cut. And in that case, blood can pool into the lower extremities and then it won't be reaching the brain and the other organs where it's needed the most. So for, for shock treatments, uh, whether we suspect that it's due to bleeding or a spine injury or something completely different. The main idea is that we want to make it as easy as possible for the circulatory system to move blood around. So that means a horizontal patient, getting the person flat on the ground. That way the heart doesn't have to pump against gravity to get blood up to the brain is, uh, is the main idea. We should also keep the patient calm because we don't want their heart to have to beat any faster because of anxiety and we don't want any, any extra challenges to the circulatory system. It's fairly common to see people uh, raise the legs slightly, maybe uh, 8 to 10 inches off the ground, and that's medically falling out of favor a little bit. Uh, people are opting more and more for just a completely horizontal patient. There's not a lot of research that shows that raising the feet is, is helpful. But nobody says that it can hurt either. So if you've got uh, that person in your crew that says, we must raise the feet, you can, you can consent to that. It's fine. Uh, yeah, horizontal patient, calm patient, 
and then helping this person to maintain their body temperature. If it's a hot, hot summer day, that might mean getting the flight suit off if they're overheating. Most cases, though, the person is going to start to get chilled. When we look for signs and symptoms of shock, we think about tachycardia, a rapid heart rate, rapid breathing rates, and then pale, cool, clammy skin. People will turn an ash color and start to get a bit sweaty and cool to the touch. And that has to do with the body pulling the blood into the core and away from the skin. So we want to usually help keep this person warm. And that could be using clothing or using the glider if you were going to be waiting for some time. So those are those are basic go-to treatments for shock. Your other sort of go-to treatment that's usually unrealistic for us as, as just pilots would be to start to replenish the fluids. The, the ambulance service is going to want to establish an IV as soon as they can to start to push fluids into this person. We don't do that, of course. We're just paraglider pilots. But if you're suspecting your patient of shock, this would be one more reason to start giving them fluids by mouth to at least help to, to hopefully restore some fluids to their body. Small sips of fluid as they can take. I'm not telling anybody to open someone's airway and dump a liter of fluid into it. That's crazy. Uh, a patient can drink, then giving them some, some sips of water while you're waiting could be a nice thing to do to help ward off or treat shock. I think for keeping the person warm too, another overlooked thing is the, just the conduction of the person's body heat into the ground if they're lying on the ground. So that would be another case where you could either roll the person onto some insulation or get uh, like six rescuers to help gently lift the person onto some insulation. You can add clothing and cover someone up on top, but if they're lying on cold ground, that's going to be removing a lot of heat from their body as well. Have you got any recommendations of essential kit that you would have in your harness to fly with? I would go go back to the, the, my, my beginning comments. I think people definitely need to make sure that they feel ready to assist. And so I think having some way to contact rescue services is a must. And I think having some way to give your coordinates via GPS uh, is a must. And then having enough body substance isolation equipment, whether that's rubber gloves or, or whatever it's going to take for you to feel confident to go help someone. I think those three things are a minimum. I wouldn't want to fly ever without the ability to contact a rescue services and tell them exactly where I was and at least keep myself as a rescuer safe from bloodborne pathogens from somebody. So I think those, those three would be a bare minimum. As far as first aid supplies, yeah, it gets it gets pretty personal pretty quick as to how many things that you want to carry. And I think most first aid kits really are designed to address quite minor things, you know, bandaging wounds and these type of things, which are great and are very important for a trip, but are not necessarily going to make the difference in a paraglider crash. There's not too many things I can think of that I would pull out of this kit and it would make the difference for someone who sustained serious injuries. I think with body position and and CPR and direct pressure, I'm going to be able to address the ABCs 
And then if I can get a rescue on the way, then uh, then I've, I've done really, really well by my patient. And as far as cleaning and bandaging wounds, uh, if someone's on their way to the hospital, all that material is coming off anyway. You know, So I think a first aid kit is a great idea to have for, for your, your general life and for all the sort of minor scratches and scrapes and cuts that happen. It's really good to have wound care supplies and to be able to, to offer that to, to other pilots when they get minor injuries and these type of things. But to make the difference in a, in a true emergency, it's probably not so important. One thing that I've got in my harness is I carry a really lightweight space blanket. You know, just the, those foil. Sure, sure. It weighs, what, 15 grams or something? And it just sits in the bottom of my flight deck. And a space blanket is very shiny. And so mm-hmm. uh, maybe your air crew... We'll see the reflection from that if you wanted to use it to lay that out as a signaling device as well. Yeah. I guess you have to make a plug, too, for carrying a small first aid book or maybe even just a printed sheet. I know a lot of the the flying clubs issue sort of a card every year that has some emergency Mm -hmm. actions on it. And when in doubt, call this number and, and here's a few coordinates for the places we fly. That's going to make a difference as well. We should make a plug for that. Um, having some some really quick go-to information in in your harness or or in your wallet that could be very very good because when the chaos starts, you won't be thinking at your peak level, and so having that information at the ready is a, a good idea. You know, most of us fly in a community and we know each other very well and you have to remember that you might be attending the rescue of a good friend of yours so you're already distressed because this person that you care about is injured and then you're trying to do your best so that's another psychological influence that can make you stressed and forget some of the the things that you would normally if you're sitting at home saying yeah when I if I went to a rescue I'd do x y and z but actually when you're in the situation that's another psychological factor that can influence your actions yeah, most definitely. Okay, I would like to make a plug for people doing first aid, not for their buddies, but for themselves. When I broke my arm years and years ago, 15 years ago or something, I was in a field, I, it, was, it was obvious that I'd broken my arm and nobody knew what to do. And so somebody'd heard of this this recovery position and they turned me into it. And they, you know, they, they were lovely people. They had my absolute best interests at heart. But they just didn't know what to do, so they did something. And that thing turned out not to be quite the right thing. And I thought to myself afterwards, I never ever want to be in an accident situation again where nobody knows anything. So at least if I know first aid, then I can tell people what to do. So it's been great when I've helped other people, but then when I had my next accident, I had the knowledge then to direct other people what I wanted them to do which I didn't have in my first accident. So if you're the casualty, but you're the only person that knows about first aid, you're on a winner already. Absolutely. So you should, you should do first aid not because you're a, an altruistic person. You should do first aid because if you're the casualty, it gives you the power to do something about your situation. No, I agree. I, so I've... I've taught aid classes uh, for for almost 10 years now. That's my my main job. And so if I could recommend to people a wilderness first aid class, I think that would be my recommendation. 
those classes are, are geared towards people who are doing sports and adventure activities. And so it's, it's nice because you're going to be doing training with a bunch of like-minded people and you'll be practicing in scenarios that are realistic for, for the type of things that we do. You know, I don't want to disparage anybody that's giving first aid courses in the city. I think that's also very valid. But focusing on someone who collapses in the supermarket with a cardiac event, that's a different mentality and a different set of steps and, and thought processes that's going to make a difference when someone has an accident flying a paraglider. Wilderness first aid training is, is really great. And those are usually a, a two-day class, so you can take it over a weekend yeah, the ideal would be that you, you took that class and then went back and did some training for the, the folks that you fly with. Uh, and that could be pretty informal. We all tend to go out for a beer after we fly, and so you could just have a chat every once in a while about the ideas that you've learned, uh, all the way up to running some practice scenarios every year as a, as a club event would be a really useful thing, I think. Thanks to John for taking the time to share his knowledge. Please do make sure that you've got the coordinates of your local takeoff and landing sites, the phone numbers for the National Emergency Services, and a card with basic what to do in an emergency info in your harness. If you can, go and do a first aid course, if not for your mates, then for yourself. I sincerely hope you never need the information we have shared with you, but if you do, I hope it will prove useful. Safe flying to you all. If you enjoy our podcasts, webcasts and articles on the Paraglider, please consider making a donation to support us with our costs for hosting and also to support us in making great new resources. We've got lots of ideas for new podcasts, webcasts and articles and we'd be happy to produce them, but we need your support. You can find the donate button on any of the podcast pages on theparaglider.com as well as on the main index page. Thank you.